Hi, Chris Valentin here. Welcome to my podcast, where I hope to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ and experience God's goodness in every area of your life. I hope you enjoy this message today. And if you're looking for more resources, check out chrisvalentin.com. Holy Spirit, we just thank you for what you're doing all over the world. And we pray today, Lord, help the speaker. Yes, Lord. And Lord, and also uh, bless the congregation and all of our online family too. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Um, I want to talk to you about living and thinking uh, from eternity. Um, I, my, my mentor and spiritual father, Bill Derrybury, passed away this week. And uh, he's been my spiritual father for more than four decades. He's had an incredible impact on my life. He was uh, 90 years old. So he wanted to pass last year. And I'm like, no, 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 not yet. So I, we, I, we saw him like a few days ago, about a week ago. And he said, uh, he whispered to me, I feel like I'm going home. I'm like, all right, well, maybe, maybe now I'll be okay. <laughs> and uh, so he's lived a, a long, uh, amazing life. I've never known any human who loved like him. Wow. Any human who loved like him. <laughs> Sorry. My family just owes him such a debt. And so, uh, excited for him to go home. Bummer for us uh, on this side. Also, a very good friend of mine. You may not know this man. Uh, he's a little more behind the scenes, but his name is Joe Ritchie. He also went to be with the Lord a couple of weeks ago. Have you guys heard the, of the Rwanda project? Um, you know, after the genocide in Rwanda, this man, Joe Ritchie, who's a very wealthy businessman, ended up in Rwanda. The Lord sent him there. His daughter lived Daughter Maggie lived with the president of Rwanda. They started this uh, Rwanda transformation. He brought in Rick Warren, and Rick Warren named Rwanda the first purpose-driven nation. And a beautiful thing happened. They went from number 167 uh, on the World Bank um, uh, risk list to number 67 in three years. Now they call it the crown jewel of Africa. And this man, Joe Ritchie, um, was the catalyst behind all of that. A great man, probably the most brilliant man uh, around government I've ever met. I introduced him to Danny. We were supposed to have an hour lunch, which is D.C. This is probably eight years ago to Danny Silk. I said, you got to meet this guy. And Danny's like, all right. So we had lunch with him for an hour. We ended up there seven hours. We walk out of there. I look over at Danny and he looks at me and he goes, what just happened to me? I said, I don't know. He said, that's the smartest man I've ever met in my life. And such a good heart, such a good heart to us. So... Um, he's, um, we are, we're grieving for his family, but another really good man. Um, I want to talk uh, about eternity. You know, one of the things that happens when you get older is uh, some of your friends die. <laughs> I guess that's a simple way to put it. You know, when you're cramming for your finals, some people get theirs done first, you know. And, and, and what happens is, is that you know, a lot, a lot of my close friends have passed in the last few years. And it's, it, you know, it's, it's just, it just does something to you because uh, eternity sometimes is out of sight, out of mind. And you kind of, you know, it's like, you know, you're living for eternity. You know, you want to go to heaven, but it's not something you're thinking about every day when you're, you know, when you're doing life. And then I, you know, what's happening for me and, and probably other people too, is that, is that eternity becomes, starts to become very close. And you start to think about it more often. You start to think about as people pass and as you are with them and you start thinking about, you know, this is, 
This, this, this earthly suit I have on is not forever. And I, I wrote this, I, um, I think I'll just read it. What we do in our earth suit matters to God and has eternal consequences. Our personal eternity begins at our birth and the trajectory of forever is predicated on the foundation of the choices we make on the finite side of our existence. In other words, although the finite ultimately gives way to the infinite, our infinite future is forged, cemented, and determined by the life we choose in the 70 or so years of our planetary expiration. The, the truth is eternity for each of us. The truth is, is for each of us, I'm sorry, the truth is eternity for each of us is sealed by what we will in the finite side of our existence. And it's fixed for, and, and fixed for the next billions of years that follow. Therefore, it's paramount that we live, lead, and love in a way that shapes our lives and those we influence while we still can. Jesus put it best. We must work the works of him who sent us as long as it is day, for night is coming when no man can work. There is no night shift in eternity, no way to fix a life, repent, or take another stab at it. Once we pierce the infinite veil, the path we chose is absolute. There's no returns. There's no returns allowed. What I mean is the sale is final. So what kind of people should we be? What precisely does it take to live future present and shape eternity from the infinite side of history? What sort of superpower did God give us to influence those locked away in darkness, bound by the chains of death? I think it's, um, I've just been thinking so much about the fact that what we do in this 70, in Bill's case, 90 years, what we do today, <laughs> 80, 90, I'm going for 100, what we do in this, and on this side of the infinite world actually seals us for eternity. Like, it, it, is, it is kind of sobering to think about what I do here in this earth suit matters forever what I'll do for the next billion years. Like, I, this, there is no do-overs. There's no try-it-agains once we cross over into the heavenly side. And so what kind of people should we be and how do we live? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Jesus said this, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say things, all kinds of evil things of you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And Jesus talks about the fact that we have a reward waiting for us. In fact, reward is a major theme that flows all through the Gospels and the Epistles, that Jesus is coming back and that his reward is with him. Hebrews says that he who believes in God must believe that he is and that he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And we see this whole idea, this whole concept that we are actually living on this side of reward. The reward that we're looking for is on the other side. In fact, Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 6, 19, he said, do not store up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How many know it's great to have nice things, but those things can't have you. It's great to own a house. It's not good for the house to own you. It's not good for what I have on earth to be the treasure of my heart. And so Jesus warns us that treasure must be in heaven. And it, you know, how many of you, 
are like me. Like, I don't, I don't think of heaven that often. I, and, and now, you know, in, in this, this message is all, part of this message is about, well, I'm beginning to be, I'm beginning to, eternity is beginning to get closer and closer as I see my, some of my friends pass before me. And I'm like, wow, this is, this is real. The reality of what I do here matters a whole lot for the next billions of years. That, that, that staggering thought is beginning, I don't want to say haunt me because it's a negative, but it's beginning to press into me that what I do, how I behave, the choices I make, the, the, the way that I treat people, the way I treat God, the way I treat myself, my, my neighbors, all of that matters because it is forging my way to eternity. Jesus went on to say this, and this, is, this sounds a little harsh. I put it at the beginning. It will get better. A few people walked out for service. Sorry about that. I'm going to read directly from the Bible. And I, I wrote this. Many people are toying with their eternity in the name of grace. Mark 9.42, Jesus said, Whatever causes one of, I'm sorry, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it'd be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he was cast into the sea. This is Jesus. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for inner life crippled than having two hands you go to hell and into unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, for it's better for you to enter life lame than having two feet be cast into hell where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it away, throw it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than have two eyes and be cast into hell where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. The good news of the real gospel is power to be transformed. Jesus died to free us from sin, not to allow us to sin. Listen, any gospel, any, any gospel that is preached that does not agree with the fact that God can and will transform anyone who trusts him is not the gospel of the good news. Any gospel that holds people in sin and says, God will just forgive it. I'm sorry, Jesus died to forgive sin, not to allow you to sin. The grace of Christ gives us the ability to change. That's the, that's the, that is the message of the Bible. And the challenge is, is that there, there's a whole movement that is normalizing sin in the name of loving your neighbor. God wouldn't send anyone to hell. Let me say this. God doesn't send people to hell. In fact, as a matter of fact, he said, over my dead body will you go to hell. Do you realize that God himself became a man and died so you wouldn't go to hell? But he doesn't take away your free will. <laughs> and he does tell you ahead of time. You're like, oh, this is a hellfire and brimstone. Yeah, Bethel's really known for that, for sure. I think once in a while, it's good to point out that the choices you make today, they are forged in eternity. It's important for us to remember that God, yes, Jesus loves you. He loves you enough to tell you, you should gouge out your eye, cut off your hand or cut off your foot if it keeps you from heaven. There is another Jesus I noticed that is being preached. People preach, you know, us, I hear people, I'm a Christian, but I but I live this lifestyle and it's like, and we've normalized sin because Jesus understands me. Jesus understands you because he, in every way he was tempted, but yet without sin. 
I'm not saying if, you're, if, you, if you sin that Jesus doesn't forgive you. I'm saying when you pretend that what you're doing doesn't matter, that, that God's love, oh God, God loves me so much. This was the God, listen, I think that Jesus is love. I don't think he just loves, but First John says he is love. I don't think Jesus stepped out of love to rebuke us. I think we've redefined love and it has no rebuke. Okay, here we go. I'm right about that. I double-checked that one. I'm saying our love is gooey. It's like, oh, just do anything. Jesus just loves you. What kind of God would send you to hell? Well, hell wasn't built for you. It was built for the demons. But you can get there if you really want to be there that bad. Um, point. Um, in order to live for eternity, we must live from eternity. It's essential that we pull on the power of the age to come to mold the world of the here and now. The world, uh, the world is a celestial test site for the infinite reward. It is a con- it's in a constant state of crisis which creates a divine opportunity to demonstrate the reality of a superior kingdom and thus invite others into the ark of eternal life. What I'm getting at is, is that we don't just have a responsibility for ourselves now, we also have a responsibility for others, right? Once you get, once you get the kingdom in you, now God says, all right, awesome, you got it? Now let's get the kingdom around you. And I begin to be responsible for more than me. I, even the prayer God gives me is our father, not my father. And God's like, okay, now let's be responsible for the people around you. You got the kingdom in you. You got the power of the age to come within you. You got the power of the Holy Spirit within you. All right, you, got, you drove sin out of your life by being renewed in the spirit. You got born again. Now I want you to spread the good news and the power of the age to come to shape both people and to shape nations. And so it's therefore imperative that we meet temptations within us and the challenges around us with the mind of Christ and wield the Holy Spirit's supernatural powers to destroy the works of the devil. We must not get sucked into the mire, the mire of demonic mindsets that pit humans against other humans in a never-ending battle to steal, kill, and de- destroy what Christ died for. The political and religious spirits are at work in the hearts of men offering solutions that have negative eternal side effects, exponentially worse than the disease that they are trying to cure. It is incumbent upon us to rise above the rhetoric and join the fray with divine, sustainable solutions that are rooted in the love of God and forged in faith. This is what we do. Isaiah 61, you know these verses. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the afflicted, bind up the brokenhearted, release captives, free prisoners, speak the favorable year of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God, to grant all those who mourn in Zion, give them a garland instead of ashes. A mantle of praise instead of a spirit of heaviness, that they might be called the oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. And the first three verses are all about getting the kingdom of, of, of God into you and getting well and healed and getting whole and getting your mind well and finding joy and peace. But the fourth verse says this, then they shall return. Who's the they in the verse? The people who got healed, restored, delivered, got their mindset, got their bodies healed. Then they shall return. Then they shall return. The broken shall return. The broken who got healed, the broken who experienced the power of the age to come shall return. They shall rebuild the ruined cities. They shall restore the ancient foundations and they shall rebuild ruined cities. How many of you know that once you get the kingdom in you and you get your life together, God goes, all right, now look out there and find cities to help. Find, find people to heal. This is, 
This is a dream. I, I had a dream two nights ago. And in the dream, Jen Johnson was singing an anthem of peace over the nations. And it was ushering in an era, an era of peace. And in the, in the middle of the dream, I, I saw this Isaiah 42, 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Behold, I declare new things to you. Before they spring forth, I proclaim it to you. Sing to the Lord a new song. I, I, I want to point out probably the obvious, but when we, when we as humans build something, let's say a computer, like the very first computer, you know, Igor goes into the lab. <laughs> By the way, I didn't Google this, but I, I, this, is, this is what I think. Igor goes into the lab and he, he builds a computer and he, he, he creates a hard drive. And, and, and he brings it out and he's like, computer. And, 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 the, and the assistant says, what is that piece, that round thing? He said, mm, I don't know, hard drive. You know, because when I was a kid, a hard drive was a rough road. <laughs> what I'm getting at is that, is that we build things, then we name them, right? But I want to point out that God, you know, Genesis 1 God spoke, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, this is John 1, and the Word was with God, He was the beginning, I'm sorry, He was in the beginning with God, all things came through Him, and apart from nothing came into being. Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void, darkness was over the surface, the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the water. Then God said, let there be light. My point is, is that God, God creates, God speaks it, God calls into existence things that are not, Right? Like God doesn't build and go, let's name it light. He calls for light. He creates light. Then he goes, there's light. And what I'm getting at is this, is that the former things that come to pass, behold, I proclaim a new thing to you. How does God usher in a new era? He doesn't wait for the new era. He actually calls for a new era. He says, sing to the Lord a new song. (laughs) And when we begin to sing a new song, we release a new era. Are you with me? I'm pointing out that I, I believe that we're coming into an era that the Lord wants us to craft together. And it begins with peacemakers releasing songs. Matthew 5, 9, I, I saw last night, this is all in a dream. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And I saw the Lord cloak uh, um, Jen Johnson, but I think it's a, a metaphor of a lot of others. And they were writing songs of peace. And they were cloaked, are you, are you with me? It's too weird for some of you. They were cloaked in this peacemaker-like uh, a mantle. And as they proclaimed peace, the, the peace began to spread like wildfire, like the opposite of war. Are you with me? I wrote these down. Uh, I felt like God was looking for a prophetic people who will sing songs of the coming generation. Sing songs of the coming, coming, the coming generation. I felt God was anointing the peacemakers to release songs of revolution, but not a revolution of war or a cry or a war cry, but a revolution of reconciliation and a cry for peace. I actually heard a cadence, like a drum, a drum cadence, beating out a sound of reformation. And as two, two opposing armies marched towards one another, like in, like in a wartime, they suddenly laid down their weapons, embraced one another, and there was a loud cry of peace. The song wasn't an anti-war song, but a song of reconciliation and restoration. It's just a great word. I'm right about that. 
In, 19, in August 3rd, 1989, there was started what was called the Singing Revolution. And two, two million people spread up over 417 miles of the Baltic seashore from Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia, and they joined hands. And they began to join hands, and they began to sing songs of reformation. They began to sing their anthems. They joined hands for 417 miles, two million people on the seashore of the Baltic, of the Baltic uh, Sea, and the Russian warships were coming in to take back the Baltic states, and they sang they sang the songs of reformation. And as they sang the songs of reformation, the warships turned around and went home. They call it the singing revolution. I propose it's been once, been done once, and it can be done again. In Isaiah chapter two, verses two through four, you've heard this a few times from me. It will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will become chief of the mountains and people will stream to it. It will be raised above the hills and all the nations will come. And many peoples will come and say, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us concerning his ways and we will walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Jerusalem and the word of the Lord from, uh, law will go forth from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And it will... And he will judge between many nations and he will render decisions, speaking of God, between many peoples. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. I don't know if you knew this, but uh, if you know this, but uh, I was at the United Nations some years ago, about five years ago. And across the street from the United Nations, there's a huge plaque. And on this plaque is inscribed, engraved in this huge plaque, probably, I don't know, 10, 15 feet long, you know, five feet high. It's engraved on this plaque, Isaiah 2.4. They shall beat their swords into, into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. What I didn't realize is that I was Googling that last night to find the picture because I'd seen it and I Googled, you know, the, the, the verse. And, uh, and what came up first was a bronze statue, statue that's in the United Nations garden. And it's called, Let Us Beat Swords in the Plowshares. And it's a statue, a bronze statue. Uh, I don't know, it looks to be like 12 feet tall. I don't know how big it is. And it's a, it's a statue of a man who has a sword and he's got this huge sledgehammer and he's beating it into a plowshare. And you know who gave that to the United Nations? The, 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 the Soviet Union gave that to the United Nations in 1946. I'm just pointing out that this verse is actually alive in the hearts of people who you may not count as peacemakers. It is in the DNA of humanity. The devil wants to chase it out, but it is in the DNA of humanity to bring peace to people and, and to take away the brutal destru destruction of war. Yeah. 
By the way, because I can beat you up doesn't make me right. What you may not also know is that Cyrus wrote, well, I'll read it to you in a minute. He wrote the, the, the uh, Declaration of Human Rights for the United Nations. L- let me give you a little background. So Isaiah and Jeremiah prophesied that Israel would be taken captive by Babylon. They would live 70 years in Babylon. And in the 70th year, they would be released and they would restore their, 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 their country. And that someone named Cyrus would become king. Jeremiah prophesied that, Jer- that Cyrus would become king before Cyrus was born. You know, Nebuchadnezzar goes into, in, goes into Israel. He destroys Israel. He tears down Solomon's temple. He takes all the Israelites in. They become POWs. And he makes one strategic war mistake. He arrests Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They become the Trojan horses of the kingdom. The, 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 king's, the king's commentary on the four boys is that they were 10 times wiser than anyone else in his kingdom. Daniel opens, Daniel prays, opens his window towards Jerusalem and prays three times a day towards Jerusalem. And in the midst of that, you, you know the story that Daniel eventually leads Nebuchadnezzar through dreams and visions and the power of God into a relationship with Jehovah to the point where Nebuchadnezzar says, everybody has to serve this God or I'll kill him. He's not too graceful about that. Daniel serves Belshazzar, his, his, his son, after Nebuchadnezzar dies. Serves Darius after that. You remember Daniel in the lion's den? It was Darius who sent them there. I think Daniel was like 91. Probably why the lions didn't eat him. They're like, nah. Probably a little supernatural more than that, but. And then Cyrus becomes king. And Daniel is with Cyrus in the, in the 70th year. You can imagine Daniel, he's opening his windows towards Jerusalem because he knows of the prophecies of Jeremiah. He knows of the prophecies of Isaiah. And now Cyrus is king. And I imagine that Daniel says to Cyrus, look, dude, your name's in the book. In the 70th year, I imagine Daniel coming to Cyrus go, your name's in the book. It's prophesied you're going to let the people of God go. It's time for you to let the people of God go. And Cyrus lets the people of God go back and rebuild their nation. What it doesn't tell, what, what Jeremiah and Isaiah didn't prophesy is that Cyrus chose to pay for the, the complete restoration of the temple. Some people say as much as a billion dollars, he took it from his own treasury. Nobody predicted that Cyrus wouldn't just let the people go, but that he would pay for the complete rebuilding of the temple. I want to read you the most powerful thing. In 539 BC, the armies of Cyrus the Great, the first king of ancient Persia, conquered the city of Babylon. But it was his actions, his next actions, that marked a major advance for man. He freed the slaves declared all people had the right to choose their own religion and establish racial equality. These and other decrees were recorded and baked on a clay cylinder in, the, in his language. Today, uh, known today as Cyrus's cylinder, this ancient uh, record has now been recognized as the world's first charter of human rights. It is translated into six official languages of the United Nations and is provisional parallel to the first articles 
of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This is super powerful. What I'm getting at is this. How many know that Daniel outlives three kings, becomes the mentor for Cyrus, the fourth king. Cyrus writes the the Bill of Rights for humanity. It becomes the Bill of Rights for the United Nations. They write on the United Nations and never again will they train for war. They put, the Russians put a statue in there. They'll beat their plowshares into beat their swords into plowshares. And I'm pointing out that God has a plan. It's already been embedded in the nations. (laughs) You know, when Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, now I command you to make disciples of all nations. That was not a new command. It was actually given to Abraham. I'm going to read you this passage. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am the God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold my covenants with you, and you will be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham for I have made you a father of a multitude of nations and I will and I I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you look at verse 15 then God said to Abram as for Sarai your wife you shall not call her Sarai but Sarah shall be her name and I will bless her and indeed I will give you a son by her and then I will bless her and she shall be called a mother of nations and kings of people will come from her. I'm pointing out that God has called us to be fathers and mothers of nations. In Romans chapter four, um, Paul is talking about Abraham and he said, in hope against hope, he believed, speaking of Abraham. And so he became the father of many nations. And then it goes on to say, and so shall his descendants be. How many know that God hasn't, has called us to be mothers and fathers of nations? I'd like to propose that God doesn't love America. That God loves the world. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And I'd I, I like to propose that the world, through communication and transportation and technology, is getting smaller and smaller. That my neighbor's no longer next, just the guy next door, but the, the country in, in front of me on my FaceTime. That our children are growing up very different than you and I grew up. In fact, maybe some of them are in here, but at least very different than I grew up. Like all the information I got about other countries was coming through media. Now my kids have conversations with them, play video games with people who are in other countries and have a relationship with them. And I I think it's really important that we realize that we're in a different time in life and God is on it. That God actually loves the nations. Although I'm an American and intensely patriotic, I must embrace a sense of belonging to every nation in which God has called me and you to be a father. I can't allow my American perspectives to undermine God's call in my life to be loyal to other nations also. I must, however, navigate this with extreme wisdom so that my primary dedication and my first responsibility is to my country of origin. But my dedication to patriotism cannot undermine my ability to understand cultural perspectives and global insights of the nations that I am fathering. I am finding that these international sons and daughters have a very different outlook on American history than I do. 
and I'm being persuaded to black and white thinking, they're the good guys, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. <laughs> that kind of perspective is rooted in a, in a system that doesn't know God. Yeah. And I just want to point out that, um, that God is doing a new thing. Yes. He's singing the song of Isaiah 2 over the nations. It's gonna re, it's gonna, it, it, we need a new definition as, of the body of Christ. I want to tell you that when I uh, went to Russia for the very first time many years ago, I didn't realize it until I was exposed to it, but I hated the Russians. I didn't know I hated the Russians until I got to Russia. And I began to have thoughts about my childhood. From the time I was five in public school system, we had these air raid alarms and they went off every month. And we were taught to get underneath our desk and grab onto the desk because the Russians, when the, you know, these air raid alarms, when the Russians come and drop bombs on us, an atomic bomb on us, that we can be safe holding onto our desk. That <laughs> makes no sense at all. I'm just like, and that little pile of ashes was Chris. As I got older, you could be driving your car and all of a sudden you go, eh, 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 eh. You know, if you got in your car and turned on the radio a little late and the, the alarm was going off, you had to wait for two minutes for this to go. This was just the test of the emergency broadcasting system while your heart pounds out of your chest because you have PTSD from going through it since you were five years old every month, you know, for 12, you know, nine months a year in school. And when I got to Russia, I realized that I actually did not like these people. And uh, I was preaching the first night, dealing with this thing I didn't know was in me. I didn't know it was in me. And I'm preaching to these people, I'm bringing them the good news of the gospel, but it is not felt. <laughs> and as I'm preaching, the Lord says to me, I want you to give this word to Russia. And I'm like, oh, oh, no, I'm not doing that. And the Lord gives me this beautiful word for Russia while I'm preaching. Nothing I wanted to give. And, uh, and, as I'm, and as I'm giving the word, I could feel like something was breaking in me. I could feel it. I couldn't explain it. It wasn't mental. It was deeper. It was deeper than my, my intellect. I could feel it, though. It was breaking. And the more I prophesied, the more I prophesied, the more it was breaking. And I gave this amazing word to, to, to Russians. Well, y you can imagine the Russians came up and they were, uh, you know, they, they, most of them, they don't speak English. So they came up and they were like telling me like, oh, so good, kept saying, so good, so good and weeping. And one of the, one of the Russian military, I, don't, I couldn't figure out if he was former military or what, but he got a, com a commemorative watch when he was, I don't know if he was a general, I think he's a general. And he hands me this watch in tears and said, God told me to give this to you that we have a covenant together. And my translator goes, do you understand what just happened? And I'm like, I think so. And so we get to the green room and I'm like undone. Something's happened to me. And I begin to describe to them what, what happened to me when I was a kid. That I was underneath deaths, fearing the Russians were going to kill us. And I, and I, and I began to share with them that all of this stuff began to grow in me from the time I was a little boy. And as I finished, the Russians began to recount that they were also under deaths. 
at the same exact time and that they had a monthly air raid alarm and that they were told the Americans were going to bomb them. I went to bed that night in a hotel. I don't know if Kathy remembers, but I was texting her and I was texting Bill. Something was happening to me like all this evil was coming out of me. All this years of fear, what fear does to you, it just, it just instills in you anger and bitterness and hatred. And I was laying in bed and this stuff was coming out of me. And the Lord said to me, if you will love this country and love its leadership, I will give you influence. And I began to remember the story of Daniel and how he was serving a very wicked king and how he said to the king, when he saw that the vision of the king was bad, O king, may this be about your enemies, not about you. And when Darius throws him into the lion's den, and the king comes to the lion's den early in the morning and says, Daniel, was your God who you served day and night able to save you? And he says, out of the lion's den, O king, may you live forever. And I began to realize, you can't disciple nations if you don't love them. And I begin to realize there is another way. There is another choice. It's not, is this guy, should this guy get his way or should that guy get his way? Should this country get his way? Should that country get his way? I feel like there's another way. There's another way. I remember when, when Joshua was at Jericho the first night, terrified that morning because God said, you're going to take Jericho. He's looking at the walls. I imagine he's having close to a panic attack because God prepared him, right? Don't be, don't be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. And an angel of the Lord shows up to, to Joshua with a sword drawn. I mean, it doesn't get worse. And Joshua looks at him. I'm sure he's like, oh my gosh, it, it, the walls are bad enough. And he says to the angel, are you for us or are you against us? And the angel says, no. Like, here's the two questions. Here's the way I look at it. You're either for us or you're against us. Like, are you for them or are you for us? The angel goes, no. Nope. Then he says to him, I've come as the captain of the Lord of hosts. In other words, he says to Joshua, the question isn't who am I for? The question is, who are you for? I'd like to propose that the nations have another choice. That it's not, it's not this nation or that nation. But the Lord is coming as the one in charge. That the Lord is coming to decide between nations. That the Lord is the one who's breathing this peace. I know what people think. Well, you know, they thought there was going to be peace in the First World War, Second World War. I, I get all that. And we could be wrong. But what if we're right? What if we save millions of lives because we begin to sing a new song? And we begin to release Isaiah 2 over the nations. Somebody had a vision of it. They put it on a plaque outside the United Nations. Somebody had a vision of it. Are you with me? Would you stand? Let me pray for y'all. I'm right about this. I, I feel the Lord wants to break our hearts for the nations. I feel like there are, there are there, there, we don't even know it, but there is prejudice in us I'm not saying all of us, but there is prejudice in us that we probably don't even know. And we encounter a situation, suddenly something comes up and we're like, where did that come from? And in my case, it started when I was five years old. I didn't even know I had it because I never knew a Russian. Well, I did know a couple. 
I just lied. But I wasn't thrust into their environment where it pushed it out of me. And I believe that the Lord wants us to be mothers and fathers of nations. Not just a mother and father in a nation, but mother and father of nations. And I believe that if we could fall in love with the nations, that God would give us influence with them. So I want to pray for that love that transcends. That transcending love. that trans, It's bigger than you. It's bigger than your ideas. It's bigger than my ideas about who's right and who's wrong. And I believe that the Lord wants us to create, uh, he wants us to initiate a new way to live in America. That we, that we are patriots, but we are first lovers of God. And that we are first fathers and mothers. And that we don't hold nationalism in a way that goes, we're the good nation, you're the bad nation. Listen, anybody besides us, you're, you're, a, little less, you're a little less than us. If we deal with you, you're a little less than us. And we're like, no, no, we are, God loves all the nations equally. He doesn't love one son more than another. He doesn't love one daughter more than another. He doesn't, he doesn't give one son. He doesn't give his, he doesn't love someone in a, in a way that reduces the love for somebody else. God has enough for everybody. And Lord, I pray in Jesus name that you would envelop us in love for the nations. That literally we would be like Daniels and Esthers and Josephs who fall in love with foreign kings in a healthy way and we can see past all their crap and their crud and we begin to say, yes, but there's, you, were, you were actually created in the image of God. There's something good in you. There's, something, there's a treasure in there somewhere. And Lord, we just pray that we'd be people that come along and bring out, call out the gold, bring out the gold. Lord, that we're the kind of people that, that other people come into our midst and we call out the treasure in them. Lord, we bless our brothers and sisters from the other nations. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Soviet. God bless you. Thank you for listening. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you want to find out more, read my blog or listen to the previous podcast episodes. Go to chrisvalentin.com. Have an awesome day.